0: Amen. All right. Let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback underneath the seat close by you. Genesis chapter 4 is where we will start this morning. It won't take us long to get into Hebrews 9. We're in a series right now walking through the book of Hebrews. Uh, We'll get into Hebrews 9, but we have a tricky passage today in Hebrews as we finish out the chapter. It's tricky. It's difficult. It's often misunderstood. um, And it's one of the more offensive passages in Scripture To many modern people, it it makes us think less of God and think of God as as not someone who should be worshipped and followed and trusted. And so we need to do two things, I think, to get ready to go into Hebrews 9. The first is we need to learn Greek, and the second (laughs) is we need to start in Genesis chapter 4 at the beginning of the scriptures. So number one, let's do some Greek. Uh, Here's how could I teach you Greek this morning? alphabet vowels now here's what i'll do let's divide the room in half okay so from right here to this side y'all are a team all right y'all are a team from right here to this side y'all are b teams so here's what we're gonna do i'm gonna teach y'all a word in greek i'm gonna teach y'all a word in greek and then together as a team we'll put together a sentence okay now a team i gave you a difficult word because i trust you guys all right <laughs> i believe in you Here's your word. Here's what it would look like in English. Here's the Greek underneath it. Three parts. It's not hard. Three parts to it. Hema, hema. tech, tec. tec. kusias. So as we slowly put together, hema tech kusias. Hema tech kusias. Hema tech kusias. Tec, tec, look at A team go. All right, B team. Y'all have a pretty easy word. Not that I don't believe in you. Your word is three parts as well. It's a, ah, ah. fes. Is is, aphesis, aphesis. All right, not bad. Now, what's going to happen? I have a part two. We're going to put together a sentence, and I'm going to point at you when it's your turn. Okay? So we're getting some Greek down this morning. Chorus,
1: hematokusias
0: Hema uginete aphesis. Chorus, hematokusias uginete aphesis. You want to know what you just said? Well, we'll have to wait for a little while. <laughs> so put that in your back pocket, because we're going to need that when we get into Hebrews chapter 9. Put in your back pocket. Chorus, hematicusius, Genesis 4 is where we need to start. At the very beginning of your Bible, it's Genesis chapter 4. And I think that, with our phrase, will get us ready for this passage in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 here. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Okay, so this is one right after Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, mankind falls. (laughs) They disobey. They rebel. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And then in chapter 4, the first thing we hear, they know each other and is born a son, Cain. Then they know each other again Fruitful and multiply. Little brother for Cain. Cain and Abel. Okay. Now Abel, verse 2, was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So mankind has just fallen, sin has entered into the world, and you have a big brother and a little brother. Big brother takes a plant, a vegetable offering younger brother takes an animal offering. We don't know why they're bringing offerings. We haven't been told about offerings or sacrifice at this point in the story. We don't know why God accepted the animal one and not Cain's. But we do know that it happened and Cain is upset about it. He's upset about it. And look what happens here. Verse 8, God warns him, sin is crouching at your door. Be careful. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Okay, now this is classic Old Testament narrative. Um, So you get this really intense story in like five words. So in America, we would draw this out to 350 pages. There'd be details and you'd be crying. In Hebrew, in the Old Testament, they go, Cain spoke to his brother and killed him. But catch what just happened here. Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 3, the fall. Before we know it, the people that God created are killing each other. you are the first murderer. Cain kills his little brother, Abel. God comes to Cain, verse 9 says, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? Interesting, that phrase is kind of kept in currency throughout throughout time. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Okay, this is the first time we actually see the concept of blood here. And blood universally is a symbol for death and nastiness. And it just kind of irks us out. And so I don't know if you're like me. Some people can handle blood better than others. um, But I'm fainting in like 30 seconds if I see my own blood, right? Uh, I've never been good at giving blood or IVs or anything like that. God definitely has a sense of humor because I was once real sick and I had to do like an eight-hour blood test um, where literally I can't do a 12-second blood test. And they're like, you're going to sit there for eight hours. Um, So blood from the beginning has had this kind of, it, it represents, I mean, if you see blood gushing, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing for you. Blood is supposed to be on the inside of your body. And also we see blood cries out to God. Here we see blood almost portrayed like a stain, which is an image that again has stuck with us with the phrase, you've got blood on your hands. God comes to Cain and says, whoa, 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 what is this? Where's your brother? The blood is crying to me. Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord says, Now you are cursed from the ground, verse 11, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. So he's separated further from God. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. That's interesting. Cain is going, whoa, whoa, if you send me out into the world, I'm going to be killed. Keep that in your mind. The Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Cain went away, went to Nod, east of Eden. So this is very interesting. I don't have time to really unpack it, but think about this sometime this week. God comes to Cain and protects him. So you would expect maybe God to protect the rest of humanity from Cain. There's a murderer now in the scene. But God goes, Cain, I'm going to protect you from everybody else. The implicit idea here is that there is in humanity a sense that blood requires blood. Retributive justice. Blood will have blood, Shakespeare said. And God seems to not be interested in vengeance, but in stopping the violence. He says, no more. I don't want more blood on the ground. And Cain says, but if you send me away, they're going to kill me. He says, I'll put a mark on you. People will know you hurt Cain seven times will come back to you. So he protects him. If you skip down to verse 23, we're almost done here. Um, Cain has sons who have sons who have sons who have sons. Distant descendant named Lamech. He takes two wives and he tells them this in verse 23. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. Just as some punk came up and slapped me on the face, I killed him. And he says this, if Cain's revenge was sevenfold, my revenge is 77 fold. So notice what's happened here. The violence, the murder that started in Cain has grown. It's spreading. It's growing. It's becoming larger. Cain's descendant takes what was a blessing from God and turns it into more violence, death. He brags about the fact that he will kill other human beings. Now, here's why Genesis 4 is important, why I wanted to get here. Because what happened in Genesis 4, which was a continuation of sin in Genesis 3, never stopped. It never stopped. To this day, this cycle, this growing and infiltrating of sin and violence, continues. So we could say um, that you and I are heirs of Cain. We are heirs of Cain. We live in the world that Cain lives in, and we live like Cain lived in that world. So this blood, this murder has never stopped. Um, it's never ever stopped and so when the scriptures want to convey to you that sin is a real thing that there are real effects for disobeying and leaving God they point out two things most characteristically the first that we kill each other and they say look look what's happening this is what happens when you leave God they turn on each other they they kill each other the second is is poverty and abuse, oppression they don't even take care of each other look they've plenty of food but people aren't eating Psalm 14 would say, you want to see evil, turn on the news, and then try to tell me there's no sin or evil or darkness in the world. To this day, it's continued. So we could say we live in a very bloody world, a very bloody world that's a result of our sin. And so, I mean, if we wanted to use blood and violence as an example, the 20th century, um, so After lots of technology, lots of philosophy and thinking about how to make the world a better place. Lots of medicine advances. After all that, in the 20th century, we saw two world wars and countless genocides. So in 94, in Rwanda, at least half a million people were killed in 100 days. 1994. We're heirs of Cain. We live in a bloody world. 21st century hasn't been that much better Hasn't been that much better. And again, that's just one small example. That's that's one kind of extreme death. But then there's um, poverty and abuse. And then there's the way that sin works itself out in our lives every day. With relationships that have gone wrong. Marriages falling apart. Um, with addictions and depression. With abuse. With idolatry. We live in a, a bloody world as a direct result of sin. And just as... That blood stained the ground around Cain. I think if the author of Genesis were looking at our story in the 20th century, the 21st century, he would say, The blood is crying out to God. So, what you and I do, and we'll keep this in mind, is we have become really good at kind of ignoring the state of our world. We, we kind of think we're maybe a little bit better than we are, but globally, we're not. I mean, some have made the argument that the 20th century has been the most deaths than all of history combined. Some have pushed back on that. There's lots of different reasons why that may or may not be true. The point is, hey, we're not doing any better. What happened here has grown and grown and grown. And the blood is crying out to God. This sense of uncleanness, dirtiness. So when we think of sin, when we think of disobedience to God, there's all these different metaphors the scriptures give us to understand it. One of them is sin can be seen as bondage. It's something that we are held captive by, so we're enslaved by it. This is where we get the word redemption. We're bought out of slavery. This is why Paul says, "You were enslaved to sin, but you have been set free." In Galatians. It's for freedom he has set you free. There's another one. This is very popular in our time. Sin can be seen as legal guilt that there was a law that was broken, and because of that, you stand with a verdict of guilty, with a punishment coming your way. And so what you and I need is to be declared right, to be given the verdict of not guilty, to be forgiven, maybe justified. Sin can be seen as bondage. It's seen as guilty, a guilty sinner and the sense they, they've broken a the law, legal guilt. And then this third one, Sin can be seen as uncleanness, as dirt, as a blemish or stain. This is what we're referring to when you hear things in songs or in poems that would say your sins have been washed away. What's the idea here? You were dirty. You were stained with sins. They've been washed. They've been cleansed off of you. They've been cleansed off of you. Um, This is an interesting metaphor for sin. And it's going to be very important to us today and to the entire book of Hebrews, actually. Um, So I would unpack it like this. I don't like to be dirty. Like there's this like inherent feeling and desire in me to be clean. And I think I probably take it a little bit further than most people. I've kind of got the OCD to me about that. So I take two showers a day. I mean, that's what I do. I'm not doing my part for water conservation, I know. But I can't sleep without taking a shower, and I want to take a shower as soon as I get up. Um, And I, I mean, we're all, we have deodorant, we have perfume, cologne, all these different things. Why do we want to be clean? I mean, why do we brush our teeth? Why, if you got in the car today, you were driving here to church, and you had an accident, why would you probably turn around and go change your clothes? Why would you probably not walk into the sanctuary and sit down? Because other people are going to go, oh, no, thank you. Because there's going to be a relational gap. Because dirtiness and uncleanliness pushes people away. It repulses people. It repulses people. A biblical scholar um, named George Carrot he said this, deep in the heart of mankind, there's an instinctive aversion to dirt, disease, and death. And in almost every language, the words which convey this abhorrence are also used metaphorically to express and evoke a similar loathing for sin. There's this dirtiness, there's this uncleanness. Now this is the main metaphor, the main way to understand sin when it comes to thinking about sacrifices. Sacrifices, being washed clean Of your sins. And so when we meet um, sacrifice in Leviticus, over and over again, the sacrifices are given so that the worshipers would be clean, so that they could enter into the sanctuary, so that they could approach God and find life and forgiveness and salvation. But what has happened is sin has stained us, and there's this gap between us and God. And it's into this problem of uncleanliness that God has promised His people atonement. He's promised us atonement. To atone for something means to, to deal with sin, um, to deal with the offense that's happened between two people. Um, and at it's more basic, it means to reconcile, to bring two parties back together. In fact, our English word comes from the phrase to be at one with somebody. You can, if you, I'm a nerd with words, and so I like thinking about this. But the first time we see this is in the 13th century. This idiom in the English language, to be at one with someone. And that slowly became the word atone. And that slowly became the word Atonement at one minute to reconcile two parties. And this atonement is the heart of the promises of the new covenant. So let's flip to, to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Chorus may tachusias uginete aphesis. Don't forget. We've been dealing a lot with the new covenant since chapter 8. The new covenant was quoted for us from Jeremiah chapter 31. The heart of it, this promise that God makes to his people is I will be their God and they will be my people. Atonement. They will come back to me. I will go back to them. And then one of the the central promises, the central ways that's going to happen in the new covenant is I will forgive their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. I'll, I'll make a way for them to approach me despite their sin, despite their uncleanness. So let's pick it up in verse 15 here. We'll finish out the chapter. Let's just read all the way through here. Verse 15, therefore he, this is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from And sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified, to be cleansed with the rites. But the heavenly things themselves... With better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood not of his own. Verse 15, he's the the mediator, the new covenant. It's, It's come through Jesus, particularly his sacrifice. His death has brought about atonement, the new covenant. This is the heart of the Christian faith. This is the heart of the argument he was making to his congregation. This has happened through Jesus, through this young Jewish prophet. This is history, dying on a cross. God fulfilled all of his promises to bring people back to him, to forgive their sins, to write the law on their hearts, to be their God, to have them be his people. He's done it through them. Now, I want to, as a way of getting us to kind of start to engage with this text, with this passage, I want to point out three kind of things here. We have them on our worship guide to fill in. Um, The first one we see this here as, um, it keeps talking here through verse 15 all the way through 22, um, all this blood and death talk. I mean, blood and death and sacrifice and blood and death. Um, we see here from the beginning in the first covenant, sacrifice and blood have been and are central to atonement. Sacrifice and blood have been and are central to atonement. Okay, let's go back to our Greek here. I'm not going to help you out, so get it in your mind. Get ready for it. Ready? Chorus. Heme tacusias. <laughs> he Heme tacusias. He Chorus. Heme tacosis. Ugenete <laughs> he afesis. Here's what this means. Chorus without, apart from, separate. Hama tacisias. The shedding of blood. Blood coming from a living creature and being poured out. U, no, not. Genete, can be. Ephesus, forgiveness. Chorus, hematacousias, U, genete, Ephesus. Without blood being shed, forgiveness is not found. And this is where people have a problem. Because this makes God into this I mean, we talked last week, some have said Christianity is the religion of the slaughterhouse. This makes God into some angry, arbitrary person who said, I want death. If you want me to be happy, kill things. And that's what they did. Blood was shed over and over and over and over again for a long time. And then the Christians said, not that sacrifice wasn't, Right, That blood wasn't found through forgiveness, but that it was ultimately in Jesus, in a human sacrifice, that forgiveness was found. And so we at once go barbaric and ignorant. Put it away from us. Let's dive into this just a bit. It's very foreign to us, this concept of sacrifice, of bloodshed, very foreign to us. Very, very, very different. It's a world apart from us. But two people of antiquity... It was almost universal. I mean, it would be hard for them to imagine a world where your relationship with the God or a God or gods didn't involve bloodshed and sacrifice. Um, And so because of this, because it was so universal, it's almost never explained. You don't need to explain something if everybody agrees about it, right? So we have a hard time trying to get back into the psyche and go, why were they doing this? We just know that they did it. And we know that it washed away their sins. That was what they believed. But it's hard to get back into their mind. Um, We can do it like this. The best we can do, looking back at what was happening with the animal sacrifice, was one, it was this graphic picture of the seriousness of sin and God's commitment to deal with it. So you see sin reaching its conclusion, which is death, in another. Not you. The scriptures are very clear. The wage of sin is death, the punishment for eating for disobeying just through was death. When sin is fully grown, it births death. And when you sacrifice, you see your sin grow up in something that's not you. And so we talked last week. I mean, imagine if you were an Israelite, and that was burned into who you are and how you thought about God. It was blood. And then you have this blood, the sacrifice of an unblemished offering. Letting sin work itself out in that, not you. That blood washing your sins away so that you could then approach God. Now, again, it's its foreign to us. It it almost seems, as as true as it seemed to them, where they didn't have to question it, so it seems to us that it was wrong. I mean, it's just inherent in us. So, and if you watch this every now and then, um, in 2003 in Houston, there's this big raid and they took away, they busted into this guy's house, I think, and they took away 12 goats and some lambs and a bunch of chickens and things like that because they found out he'd been offering sacrifices with animals. And we, everyone explodes. Because what? It's wrong. How superstitious. You're going to kill an animal to, to try to do something religious and with God? Now, if I brought a lamb up here this morning and I had a knife in my hand most of you would think uh, it was just a big illustration, probably a little too far, but I was going to stop. Um, now, if you knew that I was planning on sacrificing this lamb in front of all of you, I would probably be stopped. If, I mean, if you knew without a doubt, Brad would stand up and go, you're not going to do this, Mike. <laughs> stop. Put the knife down. Why? Because it's inherently wrong to us. It's inherently wrong to us. Here's the problem, though, that we have as people in the 21st century we look back on people in the ancient world and in antiquity, and we have an attitude of arrogance and cockiness. So we say, we know so much more than you do. You are so superstitious. I mean, it's really interesting to me, particularly working with youth, um, who think that maybe the deep thoughts and questions they have that keep them up at night, this is the first generation that's ever thought of those things. No, no, no. People have been thinking those things for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And in fact, I would argue, maybe thousands of years ago, their answers were better than ours are. But we look back and have this arrogance and cockiness. And so it wasn't even too long ago, in the 15th century, that it was very common to believe in like fairies and demons in the forest. I mean, it wasn't like this weird fringe belief. But if you something went missing in your house, you would blame it on a fairy from the forest who just wanted to mess with you, and they would come and mess with you. And no one doubted that. That was just kind of, yeah, that's what happened. Well, we look back and go, no, 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 that is so foolish. Are you kidding me? What? Because we have science and we have seen the forest. We say it's not there. We haven't seen it. That doesn't exist. Now, the problem with all of this is, um, so let's, we can do it like this. Let's take a Hebrew, sacrificing animals every day in the temple. Let's bring him to the 21st century. Let's turn on CNN. And he would go, how barbaric. What is, that? what is that atomic bomb? With thousands of years, this is what you've done? You've created a way to kill more people than we could even count back then? You haven't, what have you accomplished? How, how are you going to pass judgment on us? See, so what we do, and this is Genesis 4, we live in a bloody world. What we do is we ignore the world around us. We push back the stain that cries out to God. The Hebrews didn't do that. They constantly had blood flowing. In a sense, maybe they understood sin and holiness and God more than we ever could. So before we leverage barbaric accusations, ignorant accusations against them, we need to let them speak. We need to let them speak. So sacrifice and blood, central to atonement. Sin working stuff out in another, and then that blood washing the worshiper. And then the, the scriptures in Hebrew and all the scriptures say this, that Jesus, his death, was the great moment of atonement. I'm sorry that rhymed. That wasn't on purpose. Um, but when he died on the cross, this was when God and man were made at one. When the new covenant was inaugurated, when sins were dealt with. He's the media of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the inheritance because a death has occurred. In verse 16 and 17, it switches to the word will in the ESV. Um, In the Greek, it's the same exact word for covenant and will. But it's kind of this play on words. And he's saying, in a covenant, when you made a covenant, you would kill something, you would sacrifice something. And he'll talk about how they did that for the first covenant. And in a will, something has to die too. Because it's very similar. A death has to occur for the promises to come true. And he says that death all along was Jesus. And these old sacrifices with the blood shedding... pointing to God's son on the cross shedding his blood for us now there's something very deep happening here Um, two things actually the first is we are being given a revelation of God through blood suffering and death so there I've heard pastors I've heard a pastor say verbatim um, we don't talk about the cross um, and we don't talk about sin and blood because it it pushes people away It offends people I've heard another pastor say, this was kind of recent, the cross gets in the way of the gospel. And so I understand, if, I mean, his reasoning is probably talking too much about the cross gets in the way of actually telling people about Jesus' love. I mean, they get offended, they don't listen. They go, that's barbaric, that's ignorant. But the problem is, at that point, you, what, you don't have the gospel, you don't have the good news. You definitely don't have the faith of the scriptures, of Christianity. I mean, you might have some self-help, self-esteem type message, The gospel, the atonement, the new covenant is about someone dying on a cross about blood and sin and death. The second thing that's happening a real deep, if you, if you look here and you look elsewhere in scripture, there's this idea here that when Jesus dies, it's almost like God himself dies. So if you take the idea of a will, the one who makes the promise needs to die for the inheritance to come through. Well who made the it was God who made the promise. Throughout the scriptures you see this linking of Jesus and God to where explicitly, every now and then, so Acts twenty twenty eight. You can write that down, go we'll look at it later. Acts twenty twenty eight, Paul is talking to the elders in the church in Ephesus, and he says, God has obtained his church by shedding his own blood. By shedding his own blood. Well, now we're in mystery. Because how does God shed blood? No one, no one expected this. No one ever thought of this. The scripture saying, hey, all those years of watching animals be sacrificed, we're preparing you to understand what's at the heart, the center of God's desire and affection for you, which is bloodshed, death. God, through Jesus, offers his own blood, the heart of mystery here. From the heart of mystery so, um, i read you this quote by a guy named C.F.D. Moll. He's another um, biblical guy. Pay attention to this. He says, on the cross, there was no overlooking of guilt or trifling with forgiveness, no external treatment of sin, but a radical, a drastic, a passionate, and absolutely final acceptance of the terrible situation and of his absorption by the very God himself. With a fatal disease so as to neutralize it effectively. What's happening on the cross. God looks down at the sin that we are enslaved in. That we are guilty of. That we are dirtied in. And he says, here's what I'll do for you. I'll let it work itself out in me. You've created this. It has to grow. Give it to me. And he literally becomes human, God in the flesh, Jesus the Son. He goes on a cross and we watch it work itself out in God. The cross tells us this, everyone look at me. The heart, I mean the very center of God's existence, his nature, his character, is self-giving, self-sacrificial love. Where he would come to his people and say, there is nothing in hell, heaven, or earth that will stop me from saving you. With a radical abandonment, with all the ferocity that could ever be contained in the world, I will redeem and rescue and forgive. We talked last week, forgiveness involves suffering. Forgiveness is not just pretending like nothing happened. Anyone who's tried to forgive knows it's agony. Why? Because you're letting the offense, the gap, the debt work itself out in you instead of making them pay for it. This is what God's doing on the cross through Jesus, making atonement for us. Here's the last thing that I'll, I'll point out for us to, to see here in this passage His death was the, the moment of atonement. If you look in verse 23 through 28, Jesus then enters into heaven. He sprinkles the heavenly sanctuary with his blood to prepare the way for the worshipers, us to enter. He goes before the presence. It's the face of God on our behalf, presenting his sacrifice once and for all. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having appeared once to bear the sins of many, you and I will come back, but not to deal with sin, to save those who are eagerly waiting him. Jesus, our high... Priest presents the offering to God. This is where we get this important concept of the high priest. Jesus then takes the sacrifice and says, They're washed. Their sin has been dealt with. They are clean to enter into your presence and find life and joy and peace. All the things that you have promised them. They are they're they're cleansed. They're forgiven. They're free. So the picture here is of the Day of Atonement. And so this was once a year in the Hebrew people's lives, in the Israelites' lives, um, Yom Kippur, and what would happen is they would have, it was almost like the super sin offering. It was the big sin offering. And so the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. Remember, no one entered the Holy of Holies. Once a year, someone was allowed in, and it was the high priest. But it was such a big deal that they would spend a large amount of time beforehand getting ready for it. And so he would go through lots of washings. He would make lots of sacrifices just to prepare for it. He wants to be clean to go into God's presence so that he can atone for the people's sins. And while he's doing that, the people of Israel, they would pray for him. And so at their houses, their tents, when they're eating their meals, they would talk to their children about what's about to happen. And they would pray for the high priest, that God would be merciful to him as he approached him that God would accept the atonement, the sacrifice, that God would continue to work in them and change them and allow them to follow his instruction, his Torah. And the high priest during this time would go through these washings, go through these sacrifices. And then on the day of atonement, Israel would gather around the tent, the temple, the tabernacle. And if you remember a picture from last week, there was this fence around it, right? And inside the fence was the courtyard. Then you have the tent itself. Well, Israel would gather, and he could fit into the courtyard, and then others around it. And the high priest would watch as he walked into the tent. And they would read scriptures, and they would pray, and they would weep over their sins. And he enters into the tent; they can no longer see him. And they know he's in the first section of the tent offering a sacrifice. And after a little bit, he enters into the holy of holies. And all this time, the Israelites are outside waiting around the courtyard praying and worshiping and reading scriptures. And as he enters into the Holy of Holies, all of Israel holds their breath, waiting to see if he'll come out. Waiting to see if he'll come out with a word of judgment or a word that their sins have been forgiven. Waiting to come out and the high priest would emerge and he would get to the hard task of sanctification of living rightly. Now what Hebrews does here is it places us in a very specific point in history. Okay? And so he's done this before. He did this with the Exodus and the Promised Land. He said, we're right smack dab in the middle. We're in the wilderness. We have been saved. We're waiting to enter into eternity, into the Promised Land, into eternal rest. Here he does it again. He says, here's where you and I are, Christians in history. Our high priest has entered into the Holy of Holies. And we're waiting for his return. We're holding our breaths. And we know when he comes back, it's not to deal with sin. We've been washed. We've already been atoned for. It's to save. It's to finally and completely and fully bring us into God's presence. You and I as Christians, we await his return his return is our complete, our final salvation. While we, while we await, we worship. We read scriptures. And you and I as Christians, we, we tell others about the sacrifice. It's been washed away, it's been dealt with on the cross. With him as our high priest, we find forgiveness and life. Wholeness, Healing. We wait, we return. Well remember, Hebrews is written to a group of people who are distracted. And they're in danger of losing sight on who Christ is and how important He is to their lives. Because as we're waiting, there are distractions. And as we're waiting, we start to think about how dirty we actually are. Maybe God won't accept the sacrifice. There's all these different distractions. Hebrews over and over again, look at your high priest. Look at what he has done, what he is doing. You are forgiven. These passages we've already read draw near to his presence to find help in a time of need. Because he loves you. You're washed. Washed in the blood. So we come back. Chorus Hematacusias Ugenete Aphesus Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. This is not just some general principle that God arbitrarily decided. Instead, this has been a picture all along to prepare us for Jesus. So here's the mistake that people make. The mistake is they see bloodshed. They see no forgiveness without blood being spilt. And they go, this is an angry, arbitrary God not deserved of being worshipped. But what if the bloodshed is not a picture, never was, is not a picture of his anger but his love what if it was never a picture of his wrath but of his forgiveness what if it was never a picture of his punishment but of his salvation this is what hebrews is saying to us we have such a high priest who on the cross atoned for our sins And we wait eagerly for his return. In the meantime, we'll worship and we'll praise. We'll follow. Let's pray together. Take a second and just approach God, maybe with silence, maybe with praises, maybe with confession. Father, we need you and we, we love you. We, we thank you. Even with our best attempts to ignore the bloodiness that is on our hands, sometimes we, we can't. Sometimes we're made aware of that. Sometimes we are reminded of that from the scriptures and we are brought back again to the cross where you have forgiven and loved. Father, help us find in your sacrifice all that we need for life and for faith, for endurance through hard times through difficult trials help the blood shed for our sins to be the wellspring of praise inside of us we, we can't even contain it we love you we need you thank you your Son's atoning name we pray all the god's people said amen okay we're gonna